It was last January when people began to flock to the northern Mexican state of Oaxaca. The reason for their journey, well, it's because they heard the rumor about a statue of the Virgin Mary, which was allegedly manifesting a miracle which was occurring there at the San Antonio Obispo Chapel. According to local eyewitnesses, the religious icon that had been standing there for quite some time, it it appeared to be producing actual tears, which were uh, streaming down the face of the statue. And while some travelers uh, were little more than looky-loos who wanted to go and see if the rumors were true, there were many devotees who made this pilgrimage in order to go and pray at the feet of this statue. You might not know this, but... This is just one in a long list of Mary statues that appear to be manifesting some sort of miracle. As a matter of fact, there have been more than 20 Virgin Mary statues that have appeared to produce something like tears or blood. The first reported case that I could find occurred back in 1643 when a statue of the Virgin Mary Uh, which was located at a Roman Catholic church in Rotwell, Germany, uh, began to uh, produce tears. According to the eyewitnesses back then, uh, the statue turned pale. It, it, It allegedly raised its eyes toward heaven. Some claimed that they actually heard the statue speaking, and and all of the eyewitnesses claimed to see the statue's face turning red as the eyes began to shed a few tears. Since then, there have been many claims about Marian statues that manifest some sort of miracle. Uh, For example, it was 1953 when a statue in Sicily began to produce what they believed to be human tears. I don't know if they like tasted it and it was salty. I don't know, but... You know, they believe that they were actual human tears. In 1992, a Catholic pastor in Virginia claimed to see a statue of the Virgin Mary weeping blood. In 2002, a Marian statue located in Rockingham, Australia, allegedly wept scented tears. I don't know who had to get close enough to smell them, but, but they claimed that they were scented. And in 2012, a statue of Mary found in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, appeared uh, to produce dripping blood from her hairline. Turns out it was only just Creole, but uh, that's a Louisiana joke. With all these stories in mind, though, we should take a moment to ask you know, should we go and pray before these statues? Should we make these pilgrimages to, to these, you know, miraculous manifestations so that we can pray at the feet of these Marian statues? And with these questions in mind, I'd like you to open your Bibles now to Luke chapter 8, because here in Luke 8, we actually find a very important story about Jesus' relationship with his mother Mary. As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to point out that it's not my desire to disparage this beautiful woman whose womb was chosen to bring forth our Lord and Savior. I have nothing but respect for Mary. I most certainly agree with the angel Gabriel, who referred to Mary as the highly favored one, and so she was. Not only that, but it was back in the beginning of this book where we learned about the day when the angel Gabriel informed Mary that the Lord was with her. And not only that, but that she was blessed among women. Without debate, Mary was blessed. There's no argument. She was highly favored of the Lord. And yet, does this mean that she has also become the queen of heaven? 
In order to answer this question, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 8. If you would look with me here, we'll begin reading at verse 19. Here Luke writes, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Here in our text today, we find Luke recounting this day when Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers set out to have a conversation with our Savior. Unfortunately for them, though, the Lord was surrounded by a massive crowd of people as he normally was. And it's for this reason that Jesus' mother and brothers, they were forced to send word uh, into the crowd so that Jesus might come out and speak with them. But rather than rushing out, rather than running out to see what his mother wanted, The Lord Jesus makes this incredible statement by saying, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. He's pointing to his disciples. Now, as we consider this statement, it's clearly in conflict with the Roman Catholic practice of praying to Mary. And in order to prove my point, I want to take a moment to consider the basis for this religious ritual of praying to Mary. You might not know this, but the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church actually encouraged their parishioners to to pray several different prayers to Mary. I'm sure that we've all heard uh, of the Hail Mary. And for the football fans, you have to understand that this is actually a prayer, not just a play. But, the, but there's a prayer known as the Hail Mary. There's also a prayer known as the Angelus, which is typically recited at noon. Uh, there are also liturgical prayers. For example, one is titled Loving Mother of the Redeemer. And another liturgical prayer, which is known as Hail Holy Queen, which actually identifies Mary as the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of God. One of the ways that the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church encouraged their parishioners to say these prayers to Mary, well, one way is by instructing them to use rosary beads to guide them in a series of repetitive prayers, which include the Hail Mary and the Hail Holy Queen prayer. Listen, by the time a person has made their way around the rosary necklace as they pray bead by bead, by the time they're done, they've prayed the Our Father prayer six times. Not only that, but they've prayed the Hail Mary prayer 53 times. When you factor in the addition of the Hail Holy Queen prayer, it seems to me like the focus of the rosary is Mary. If you're praying 54 times to Mary and six times to God the Father, clearly the focus is on Mary. Now, in an effort to be fair to those who pray these prayers, it should be noted that the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church are quick to insist that they aren't asking Mary to answer their prayers. They're not praying to Mary, you know, so that Mary can answer their prayers. No, instead, they're simply uh, praying to Mary to intercede for them by asking her to pray for them. Here's how it's put in the Roman Catholic Catechism. And I refer to the Catechism because this is one of their standard works that helps us to understand what the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church teach. I I can't tell you what every Roman Catholic believes. But what I can tell you is what their standard works teach us. And so I refer to the Catechism as a standard work and and an authority on Roman Catholic theology. And so here's what the Roman Catholic Catechism says about praying to Mary. It says, by asking Mary to pray for us, 
We acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to the mother of mercy, the all holy one. Or in other words, those who are offering these prayers to Mary are are actually asking her to intercede on their behalf. They're asking Mary, you know, to, 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 to intercede for us. This reminds me of a newspaper advertisement that the Roman Catholic Church printed back in 1999. I remember seeing this full-page ad that included a large picture of Mary. And then in large, bold letters, the message read this. It says, he hasn't said no to her in 2,000 years. What would you have her ask him? He hasn't said no to, to Jesus, or, 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 you know, Jesus hasn't said no to Mary in 2,000 years. So what would you have her ask him? The basic concept being conveyed is, is based on this belief that the Lord Jesus would never say no to his mom. Jesus would never say no to mom. Therefore, if you really want help from on high, If you really want Jesus to answer your prayers, then according to the Roman Catholic Church, it's best to pray to Mary because then Mary can take your prayer to Jesus and Jesus would never say no to her. The problem with this point of view is found in our text today, though. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Luke chapter 8. I want to draw your attention back to verse 20. Here Luke writes, It was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. They're wanting Jesus. They're requesting Jesus to come out of the crowd to come and have a conversation with mom and the brothers. But he answered, verse 21, and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Mary is requesting. She's making a request of Jesus. She's asking him to come out of the crowd so that they can spend some time together. But then rather than responding to her request by rushing straight to her side, he denied the desire. He said no to the request. And he simply sat there and he continued to instruct those who had come to hear him teach. He's basically saying, hey, Mary and my brothers, they can come in here and become a part of this group if they'd like. But I'm not going to leave what I'm doing to go see what they want. That kind of blows up the whole idea that he hasn't said no to her in 2,000 years, huh? It's crucial for every Christian to realize that those who encourage us to pray to Mary are simultaneously endorsing Marian mythology. And Marian mythology is based on unbiblical beliefs, you know, that, that Mary is somehow able to intercede for us because Jesus would never say no to her. It's not true. We don't need Mary as an intercessor because Jesus is already interceding for us. This was precisely the point that Paul made in Hebrews chapter 7. It's verse 25 where Paul tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We don't need to go through Mary. Jesus is there and ready to save those who come to God through him as he makes intercession for us. Christian, listen, we don't need to pray to Mary. We, know, we, we don't need to, to hope that, you know, maybe if we can convince Mary to get on our side, that Jesus has to get on. We don't need her to intercede for us. And the reason why is because Jesus is already interceding for us. Jesus doesn't need to be convinced to intercede for us. He already is. 
And as we consider the fact that Jesus is currently interceding for those who trust in him, coupled together with the fact that he didn't seem to have a problem rejecting the request of his mother, well, then it seems to me that there's no biblical reason for us to think that we need some sort of intercessory advantage by praying to Mary. Now, with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask then, you know, if there isn't a biblical reason to believe this, if there's no biblical reason to believe that we should be praying to Mary, then why do the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church assure their parishioners that there's some sort of benefit for those who present their prayers to the mother of our Lord? Well, in order to answer this question and in order to further grasp their point of view, we should take some time to consider the Marian mythologies that the Roman Catholic Church has been promoting for many, many years. And with this as the focus, we're going to begin with their belief in Mary's perpetual virginity. With this as the focus, I want to consider something that Luke wrote back in the beginning of this book. If you would hold your place here in Luke 8, let's turn in our Bibles back to the first chapter of Luke's gospel account. As you make your way to Luke chapter 1, I just want to take a moment to remind you that You know, Luke actually began this book with a focus on the supernatural origins of our Savior. And while I realize that there are skeptics who who struggle with the belief that Mary was a virgin when she conceived her first child, I encourage you to realize that this artificial or what we might call a supernatural insemination of Mary, it's no problem for an almighty creator. Listen, we worship a God who spoke forth the existence of the entire universe. You think he's going to struggle with, you know, some sort of supernatural artificial insemination of a virgin? It's a no-brainer for an almighty God. But with this in mind, look with me here at Luke chapter 1. I want to consider the claim that that, uh, Luke here is making. Look with me there at verse 26. Here Luke writes, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great And will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel. What you talking about Gabriel? No that's that's not what. She actually said how can this be since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now here in these verses we find Luke is reminding us of the fact that Mary was a virgin at the time of her first pregnancy. And according to the angel Gabriel, the Holy Spirit of God was responsible for artificially inseminating Mary with the supernatural seed of our Savior Jesus. The Holy Spirit placed the infinite logos of God into the womb of Mary and there formed within her womb our Savior Jesus. Every Christian believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And and listen, every Roman Catholic believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, we also have to understand that they take this much further. As a matter of fact, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church actually identify Mary as being ever virgin. Ever virgin. 
Let's consider how this dogma is put forth in the pages of the Catholic Catechism. It's there in the Catechism where we find this explanation. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In other words, the Catechism is leading every Roman Catholic to believe that Mary remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, then, how was Jesus born then? We won't get into the details of this, but it leaves the question. How was Jesus born? Was it in some sort of immaterial fashion first? The Roman Catholic Catechism also elaborates on this dogma by assuring us, and I quote, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as ever virgin. Now, as we consider this dogma, which is clearly taught by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, we should take a moment to ask, do we find anything in the Bible which would lead us to believe in Mary's perpetual virginity? Because I'll be the first to say, sign me up if it's in, if it's in the Bible. I don't know better than God's word. And if the scriptures tell us that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, who do I, what do I know? Who am I? Just show me in the Bible. So is there anything in the Bible about Mary's perpetual virginity? The answer is an emphatic no. No. There are no verses in the Bible that would lead us to believe that Mary remained ever virgin. Not only that, but there are in fact verses which would lead us to think that Mary went on to have a very normal relationship with her husband Joseph. In order to prove my point, let's turn back to Luke chapter 8. Look with me again at Luke 8. I want to focus your attention there at verse 19. Here we learn that his mother, and who else? And his brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Here in these verses, we find Luke not only referring to Jesus' mother, but he also refers to the brothers of the Lord Jesus. And not only did Jesus have brothers, but he also had sisters. As a matter of fact, it's in Mark chapter 6. You can read the chapter for homework, but it's there where we learn about those who inquired about Jesus' identity, and they asked this. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters? here with us. Uh, Simply put, the person who just casually reads through the Gospels, they would walk away with the understanding that Jesus had brothers and sisters. That's just what a casual reading of, of the Scriptures would tell you. That Mary went on to have a normal relationship with Joseph and produce brothers and sisters for Jesus. Well, before you think that the case is closed, we should take a moment to consider the argument that the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church uh, Church use in defense of their dogma of Mary's uh, 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 perpetual virginity. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 19. Now, as you make your way to the 19th chapter of John's Gospel account, I I just want to take some time to consider the official statement, which is plainly put forth in the pages of the Roman Catholic Catechism. The official defense of Mary's perpetual virginity, which uh, we find spelled out in the Catechism, it's stated in this way. Against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus, 
The church has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church would have us to believe that the brothers of Jesus weren't the brothers of Jesus, that the sisters of Jesus weren't the sisters of Jesus. No. With that being the case, we should ask, who then were they? Well, in order to answer this question, let's consult the Catechism once again, which says says this, they are close relations of Jesus, according to an Old Testament expression. So what this is saying is that the church has always taught that the brothers and sisters of Jesus were just, you know, cousins. Hmm. In support of this position, some Catholics will take us to John chapter 19. And let's consider their argument beginning there at verse 25 where John writes, Now there stood by the, uh, by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Here in these verses, we find Jesus, he's encouraging his mother Mary to look at the apostle John as her son. He's there dying on the cross. We don't hear about any cousins there. We don't hear about any brothers or what happened to these, these close relations. Well, my guess is that they're all just kind of like, oh, he's getting crucified today. Yeah, we, we don't want to be next. We don't want to be on the chopping block here. We're going to stay away from this whole thing. And that's also true of the apostles and, and the disciples. The only uh, close follower, the, the only apostle who was there at the cross was John. Everyone else stayed away except for the women. And so Jesus pointed Mary to the one apostle who was standing there and said, take care of my mom. But there are some Roman Catholic apologists who insist that this is evidence that Jesus didn't have any siblings. But what they fail to realize is that John's account only proves that the siblings of Jesus weren't there. You'd have to, you'd have to you know, strain the limits of what's being said here to actually take it out further and say, oh, Mary was ever virgin because none of the kids were there to see Jesus die. It's a stretch to say the least that this verse somehow proves the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity. And yet, despite the fact that there's no biblical basis for believing this dogma, and to the contrary, there's a great deal of biblical evidence that leads us to believe that Mary bore more kids with her husband Joseph, uh, this doesn't stop the Roman Catholic Church from proclaiming a curse against those who deny the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity. As a matter of fact, it was during the Fifth Ecumenical Council held at Constantinople in 553 AD when an official anathema was proclaimed against those who deny the perpetual virginity of Mary. According to the Roman Catholic Church, if you deny the perpetual virginity of Mary, then you are cursed to hell forevermore. And not only that, but the Lateran Council of 649 AD also condemned those who deny that Mary is the ever-virgin and immaculate mother of God. Now this brings us, brings us to our second point, because listen, the Marian mythology of Rome not only includes uh, the belief in her virginal uh, perpetuation, uh, but the Marian mythology of Rome is also based upon the dogma surrounding her supposed immaculate conception, which leads them to think that she's the mother of God in an in a, in a odd way. And now with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 8. As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to consider what the Roman Catholic Church means when they refer to the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Because most Protestants who, who don't know better, when they hear the terminology Immaculate Conception, they think of Jesus. 
But the Roman Catholic Church is not talking about Jesus when they talk about the Immaculate Conception. You might not know this, but the Roman Catholic dogma, which is better known as the Immaculate Conception, it's about Mary. Let's consider the statement that we find in the Catechism, which explains the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in this way. And I quote, to become the mother of the Savior, it was necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace. It was necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace. Now, in order to elaborate on what they mean, they go on to tell us that Mary was wholly born of God's grace, uh, and they explain it in this way in the Catechism. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware, meaning that we didn't know it at the beginning, but over some time we came to this conclusion. So throughout the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace, through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception, or in other words, Mary was redeemed by God at the moment when she was conceived apart from any faith of her own. She was redeemed at conception. The Roman Catholic Catechism goes on to support this belief in this way. It states, this is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854, the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. In other words, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church would have us to believe that Mary was free from the stain of original sin at the moment of conception. That she was specially formed in the womb of her mother. That she was is somehow some sort of second Eve escaping the curse that comes from the sin of Adam. Well, okay. Just show me the Bible verse. Show me the Bible verse and I'll buy it. They don't appeal to any specific scripture, though. Rather than appealing to specific scriptures in order to provide us with a biblical basis for this belief, they, the catechism, uh, the leaders who put together the catechism offered up this argument. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of God the all-holy and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. They don't appeal to the Bible, they appeal to the fathers of Eastern Orthodoxy for their arguments. And after appealing to the fathers of Eastern Orthodoxy, the Catholic Catechism then offers us this statement. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. She was conceived in a sinless state and continued in a sinless state for the rest of time. We'll get more into that later. But as we consider their argument, which is based on the dogma of Eastern or the Eastern Orthodox Church, we must not fail to see their connection between the Immaculate Conception of Mary and the belief that she's the mother of God. Let's take another look at the Catechism. It's here in the Roman Catholic Catechism that, uh, that we find this statement. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of God the all-holy and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. Okay, so, so we've looked at this once. I, I want to consider it again. Uh, the, the dogma of Mary's immaculate conception is necessary because they actually believe her to be the Theodicus, which is translated mother of God. Again, the quote, the fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of God the all-holy. 
So, so they have to tie together this immaculate conception in order to maintain her all holiness so that they can maintain their belief about the Theodicus. Just to be clear, the Roman Catholic Catechism also requires every Roman Catholic to make this confession. Here's how they put it. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the church confesses that Mary is truly mother of God. That's that word, Theodicus. In other words, those who truly belong to the Roman Catholic Church are are, uh, encouraged to confess that Mary is Theodicus, the mother of God. And according to the Council of Ephesus, uh, which occurred in 431 AD, the leaders there insisted that if anyone does not confess that the Holy Virgin is the Theodicus, for according to the flesh, she gave birth to the word of God, became flesh by birth, let him be anathema. In other words, there's a curse placed on those who will not confess Mary, the Holy Virgin, to be Theodicus, mother of God. Now, this gets to be a little bit tricky because I would sign off on the Council of Ephesus. And and in order to understand the reason for this anathema, we need to consider the the historical context of when this was presented. You see, the Council of Ephesus, it actually falls on the heels of a great debate regarding the two distinct natures of our Savior Jesus. People were trying to figure out, is he he God? Is he man? Is he he 100% God and 100% man? Is he 50% God, 50% man? You know, there's a lot of debating going on at this period of time there in the 5th century. And one church leader named Astoria set out to explain this whole thing by insisting that the divine and human natures of Christ are... Are completely distinct and separate, and therefore two persons share one body. Now that's completely illogical to say that there's two persons in one person. You can say there's two natures in Jesus Christ, there's two natures in one person, but you can't say there's two persons in one person. But Nestorius seems to be confused about this, and in an attempt to explain the physical incarnation of Christ Jesus, Nestorius insists that Mary was only the mother of the humanity, or, or he calls her the Christotokos, which is bearer of Christ, and not the Theodicus, which is bearer of God. He's wanting to separate out the two natures of Jesus and say that, well, Mary only produced the humanity. And and, and it's almost as if like the deity was inserted after the fact. In response to this theological position, there were many who took issue with the idea that the two natures of Jesus were merely two persons sharing one body. And as the leaders of the early church engaged in this theological debate, it, it resulted in what became a clarified position that's better known as the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And just to sum that up with simplicity, the hypostatic union is based on the idea that Jesus is one united person forever being 100% God and 100% man in one person. He's fully human, he's fully divine, and there's no mixture or dilution of either nature. And with that being the case, we have to understand that Mary not only gave birth to the humanity of Jesus, but gave birth to Jesus Christ, who is both 100% God and 100% man. And as we consider the anathema that they put forward, as, they consider, as we consider the curse that they proclaimed against those who refused to confess Mary as mother of God, it's important to understand that this was less about the exaltation of Mary, and it had more to do with denouncing the heretics that were following the story as who were trying to separate the two natures of Jesus. They, they were trying to help these guys to understand that you have to believe that Mary gave birth to the God-man. That's why they called her Theodicus. 
I have no doubt that the Christian leaders who were there at the council of Ephesus, the the leaders who put forth our understanding of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, I know for a fact they would take great issue with the way that the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church have since then twisted this anathema by connecting the title Theodicus with the idea of Mary's queenship over the entire creation. I want to consider how Pope Pius XII put it. Here's an, uh, an official pronouncement, which means he's speaking ex cathedra, which according to the Catholic Church then places this statement on the same level with scripture. Here's what he says about the queenship of Mary. He declares, now, in the accomplishing of this work of redemption, the blessed Virgin Mary was most closely associated with Christ, and so it is fitting to sing in the sacred liturgy near the cross of our Lord Jesus. There stood sorrowful, the blessed Mary, queen of heaven and and queen of the world. Wow. According to Pope Pius XII, as he spoke ex cathedra, and so therefore officially as scripture, he says Mary is not only the queen of the world, she's the queen of the entire heaven. In order to explain what he meant, Pope Pius XII quotes a disciple of uh, St. Anselm, who who once declared, just as God, by making all through his power, is Father and Lord of all, so the Blessed Mary, by repairing all through her merits, is Mother and Queen of all. Wait, what? Mary is the Mother of all and the Queen of all because she repaired all through her merits? Pope Pius XII goes on to assure us that Mary is the queen of all things because she restores each to its original dignity through the grace which she merited. With all this in mind, I just want to take a moment to connect a few dots here so I can help you to see where I'm going with all of this. You see, the the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church want us to believe that Mary is the queen of heaven. And if she's the queen of heaven, then it only stands to reason that she's also the queen of the earth. And if she's the queen of the earth then she must be the mother of us all. She must be the mother of all things, including the mother of God. But not in the sense of Jesus Christ being 100% God and 100% man, but mother of God. And if she's the mother of God in the way that they mean it, then she must have been conceived apart from original sin. And therefore, they have to establish the doctrine or the dogma of the immaculate conception. She has to be immaculately conceived so that she can also be the queen of heaven forevermore. The only problem with all this is based on the fact that the immaculate conception of Mary and everything else that follows, it fails to line up with the scriptures. Again, show me in the Bible where all this stuff is said and I'll I'll buy it. I'll accept it. But we don't find this in the scriptures. In order to prove my point, let's turn our attention back to Luke chapter 8. Look with me once again here at Luke 8, beginning at verse 20. Here Luke writes, It was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. As we consider what Jesus is saying here, we should take a moment to ask, If the dogma of Mary's immaculate conception is true, then how can Jesus make this comparison? 
how can he make this? How can he rightly say that every believer who was sitting there, every woman sitting there in, 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 as his disciple at that moment, every one of them who would simply embrace the truth of God's word is on the same spiritual le- level as the queen of heaven? How can he say that without offense? How can he say that without demoting the queen of heaven from her throne? He places every disciple there, uh, you know, seated before him, listening to him teach. He, He takes them and says, hey, you guys are on the same level as my mother and my brothers. How could he say this if Mary was immaculately conceived and is now the queen of heaven? With these questions in mind, I want to consider something that the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 11. If you can, let's flip forward a few chapters from Luke 8 to Luke 11. You see, it's here in Luke 11 where we find Jesus making a very similar statement about Mary. I want you to look with me here, here, uh, beginning at verse 27. Luke 11, verse 27, Luke writes, And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you. And the breasts which nursed you. This was quite possibly, you know, the, the, the first praise song for Mary. And Jesus said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now listen, this would have been the perfect opportunity for the Lord Jesus to introduce the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. This would have been the perfect opportunity for him to present the people with a clear picture that, yes, uh, unnamed woman here, uh, you are correct. My mom is the best thing that's ever happened to this world. She's the queen of heaven. Blessed is her womb, and, and so on and so forth. He could have just taken this opportunity to say, yes, you know, she's the queen of heaven. You know, through her merits, everyone can be saved. But he didn't. He could have connected all the dots by helping his audience to understand that Mary is the queen of heaven, but he didn't. Instead, he simply placed her on the same level as every other obedient believer who who believes what God says about him. Christian, listen, there are no verses in the Bible which would lead us to believe that Mary was conceived apart from the stain of original sin. And there's no biblical reason for us to believe that Mary is the queen of heaven and earth. To the contrary. The Lord Jesus went out of his way to make sure that we don't place Mary upon a pedestal. And yet this hasn't stopped the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church from creating Marian mythologies that place her in a theolo- on a theological pedestal that's far above anything that Jesus ever permitted. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, the, the Roman Catholic Church not only invented the Marian mythology of her virginal perpetuation and the Roman Catholic Church not only invented the Marian mythology of her immaculate conception, but they also elevated the mother of our Lord uh, by inventing the Marian mythology of her physical assumption. With this as the focus, I'd like to take some time to consider uh, what, what I mean when I, when I refer to the physical assumption of Mary just to be clear, the word assumption in this context, it refers to the way in which a person is taken up into heaven. We see a few examples of this in the Bible. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 5, Moses tells us that Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. Uh, this was a physical assumption. Enoch didn't die first and then uh, resurrect. No, he, he was translated, if you will. He was assumed into heaven without dying. Uh, not only was this true of Enoch, but this is also true of the prophet Elijah. Uh, it's in Second Kings chapter 11 where we learn about this day when the prophet Elijah was carried into heaven uh, by a chariot that was on fire. I think that's pretty incredible. I'd, I'd, I'd love to go out like that myself. 
But what this means is is that there's these two Old Testament characters who uh, experienced a physical assumption. They were translated into heaven. And, And listen, we also know that there's coming a day when the church will be raptured up from the planet. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul tells us about the day when the dead in Christ will rise first and and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Or in other words, the believers who are alive at the time of the rapture are going to experience an assumption. We're going to be be physically caught up into the clouds and and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that our our bodies are going to be transformed in that moment. This corruptible body will put on incorruption. And the Lord will receive us there in the air. Now, with all these examples of assumptions from the scriptures, uh, you know, I'm fully on board with the idea that Mary could have been assumed. I got no problem with the idea of it. Just show me where it is in the Bible. Show me in the scriptures that she was physically assumed into heaven. Sadly, there are no verses. And yet the Roman Catholic Church embraces this belief. And just to be clear, I want to consider how the Roman Catholic Catechism describes the alleged assumption of Mary. They put it like this. Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of Lords, and conqueror of sin and death. In other words, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church would have us to believe that the mother of Jesus is not only the ever-virgin queen of heaven, but that she was also assumed or physically carried away into heaven. And then the catechism continues to explain this by assuring us of this. The assumption of the blessed virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians in giving birth. You kept your virginity in your dormition, or that's another word for assumption, In your dormition, you did not leave the world, O mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. Wow. According to this statement, which again we find in the Roman Catholic Catechism, Mary didn't die. She was simply joined together with Jesus through this assumption. Now, in order to understand why they believe in this physical assumption of Mary, it's important for us to realize that they, again, believe that she remained free from the stain of sin. Here's again how it's presented in the Roman Catholic Catechism. Uh, By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. From conception, which they believe was immaculate, to her assumption, they're saying, not one sin, not one sin. The Catechism of the Catholic Church also asserts that Mary was sinless by declaring from the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. Now with this in mind, I just want to consider something that Luke wrote as he recorded the the song of Mary. It's found in Luke chapter 1. If you're able, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. It's here in Luke 1 where we find Mary, she's, she's just now received you know, information about how she's going to be used to bring forth you know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's here in Luke 1 where we, where we see her beginning to praise the Lord for this. And look with me there at Luke 1 verse 46 where Mary declares, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my 
Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for hence, or behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Christian, listen, Mary herself is acknowledging that God is her Savior. Why would she need a Savior? If she was conceived you know, by the grace of God and she was immaculate at conception and thereby escaping the curse of Adam's sin and then never sinned her entire life and then was assumed into the presence of God before even dying, she doesn't need a savior. And yet here she rejoices in God my savior. She rejoiced when she discovered that the Father was going to use her blessed womb to bring forth Jesus, the sinless Savior, who was sent to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That's why he's our Savior. Why do we call Jesus our Savior? Because he died for our sins. So when Mary refers to God as her Savior, she's acknowledging her need for forgiveness. Therefore, she's inadvertently acknowledging her sinfulness. In light of Mary's confession that she herself needed a savior, there's no biblical reason for us to think that Mary was a sinless saint who was physically assumed into heaven before dying. What this also means is that there's no reason for us to present prayers to Mary. There's no reason for us to rush to a statue that appears to be weeping or something. Sadly, though, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church are still encouraging their parishioners to seek the mediation of Mary. Let's consider how it's put in the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's how they say it. Taken up to heaven, so speaking of this assumption, taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles... Advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. In other words, uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Mary is the advocate, the helper, the benefactress, and the mediatrix, and and, and therefore uh, we ought to seek her intercession. And it's for this reason that they so often flock to these statues of Mary wherever miracles are allegedly manifesting, you know, because they're they're going to to try to, you know, find, you you know, help from Mary. As we consider the titles that are given to Mary here in the Catechism, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Roman Catholic Church has exalted Mary above any reasonable measure. Christian, listen, Mary is not our advocate. Jesus Christ is our advocate. That's what the Bible says. Mary is not our helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. That's what the Bible says. Mary is not our benefactress. No, instead, God the Father is our benefactor who has bestowed his grace upon us through faith in his only begotten son. Mary is not our mediatrix. No, instead, Jesus Christ is the only mediator that we need. In order to prove my point, let's just consider something that Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy. It's here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, where Paul declares, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. According to Paul, there's only one mediator between God and man. 
And it's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be the first to say, let's honor Mary. I believe that Mary deserves to be honored. And I agree that she's blessed among women. Not above women. But she's blessed among women. And while we should most certainly acknowledge the fact that God gave her the great honor of becoming the mother of our Savior, I believe that it's a dishonor to her to place her on a pedestal that is higher than what Jesus would allow. I, I believe that those who call her advocate and you know, uh, benefactor and, and helper and, and mediator, I, I believe that those who call Mary these things dishonor her because she is none of those things. It would be a sin for us to place her on a pedestal by praying to her. I don't think that she is pleased by any prayer offered to her. And it would most certainly be a heresy for us to identify Mary as our mediator, knowing what the Bible says, that there is only one mediator between God and men, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, as we wrap up this message, I just want to remind you that it's not my desire to offend those who have been raised up in the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not my desire to offend a Roman Catholic. It's not my desire to, you know, to give you this information so that you can go out and you know, verbally beat up your Roman Catholic friends and family members. That's, that's not my heart. At the same time, though, it is my hope that those who spend time praying to Mary will begin to realize that this religious ritual promoted by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church is actually based upon unbiblical beliefs that have been built upon Marian mythologies. Trust me when I tell you that there's no reason for us to believe in the Marian mythology of her virginal perpetuation. There's no reason for us to believe in the Marian mythology of her immaculate conception. There's no biblical reason for us to believe in the Marian mythology of her physical assumption. Therefore, there's no reason to think that she is our mediator. And there's no reason to go and flock to statues and pray at the feet of these statues thinking that somehow it'll get us a little bit closer to Jesus. It won't. It'll take us further away from Jesus because it's nothing more than idolatry. Rather than seeking mediation from a mythological Mary who never actually existed, I encourage you to spend time seeking the help of our mediator, Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus is our heavenly high priest, and as such, he always lives to make intercession for those who trust in him. Let's pray.